So this evening, we'll um, depart some from the typical format for talks at Spirit Rock, of which uh, many of you know nothing, so you may think that what we do tonight is the usual format, but what we'll do is I'll talk for a while, maybe about 15 minutes, and then Sylvia and I will be in dialogue for a while, and then Sylvia will talk for something like that same amount of time, 15 minutes, and then we'll be in dialogue, and after that we don't know. (laughs) We have some possibilities and some options, but we're going to see what has life and energy, really, as we, as we proceed. More than that, who has life and energy? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that goes for everyone in the hall, actually. She wasn't just meaning us. Because <laughs> it, is, it is the end of a, a long day. You know, you may think that we've just been going for actually less than 24 hours. It's not true. It's been three days. <laughs> we have evidence of that. <laughs> okay. Not, not true. <laughs> so I thought I'd talk some generally of how the metta practice works, how what we experience in practicing metta over time, some sense of uh, some of the directions of the practice, some of the reasons why we practice, some of the some of the challenges of the practice. So first, I want to say a little bit about the the very uh, spirit of metta and, and go back to this really important point that the practice that we're doing here is really an intention practice, uh, that we're, in, in a sense, inclining ourselves towards the open heart, or we might say towards our, our big hearts, our, our big being. I like uh, one of my dear friends and colleagues, John Travis. He just refers to that aspect of ourselves connected really to the universe. He calls it the big. <laughs> it's quite sweet and simple. So we, we incline ourselves towards the big, towards those uh, uh, well, in, in the text it says boundless, a boundless heart. So we incline ourselves towards that and we do it with the phrases and we do it with our intentions. And in a sense, we then, having said the phrases, we let whatever happens happen. You know, I distinguish an intention practice from a production practice. We're not sitting here saying, we will manufacture love, we will produce love. It actually, of course, doesn't work that way. If we could manufacture love, well, you know the rest, right? <laughs> um, and so we, we incline ourselves, we say the phrases, then we let it be what it is. It's like there's a line from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Four, Quart- Four Quartets, which I 
remember uh, has really stayed with me. It's, it goes, um, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. That's really the spirit that we do our practice, which takes a lot of uh, effort. It takes coming back and then we let it be what it is. And there's a certain uh, letting go in that, really. But there's a, it's, it's a, this combination of uh, what we might call effort or um, continually, firmly coming back and then we let go and we don't try to worry so much about what happens, but we respond as wisely as we can to whatever comes up. And there's this way that, uh, the way loving-kindness works to open the heart, you know, I, I think of it as this knocking on the door of the heart, it's rather mysterious. You know, it's not very predictable at times. Um, I was thinking of the first time I ever did a, a, a metta retreat. Uh, I did it uh, for about a week, and I did it on my own, which wasn't, uh, wasn't that wise in some ways. I didn't have good instructions. I didn't really exactly know what I was doing. This was over 20 years ago, and at that point there actually weren't any metta retreats, and there really weren't any books on metta you know, like that have come out since then. So I did this on my own. I'm, I doubt seriously whether I went through these categories like we teach. I don't think so. I, um, and it also didn't feel very uh, productive. But I kept doing it because sometimes I just do that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, it was feeling somewhat dry, and I wasn't feeling this gushing, overflowing love, but I kept on doing it. And then, like after six or seven days, one morning, when I don't think I was really even keeping with the phrases, because I didn't have anyone telling me about continuity of practice, so I probably was just daydreaming, and all of a sudden, I heard my mind very clearly say, I love you. And it was really so heartwarming. You know, I really, um, I was touched and it came out of nowhere. It was like, where did that come from? I think it was related to saying these phrases. And it was mysterious. And Sharon Salzberg tells a very similar story of when she did one of her first meta retreats. And it also wasn't going that well, I think, if if I remember the story right. Uh, She probably was doing it somewhat on her own. And... She had to leave early. I think she wanted to do a few more days than she was able to do. It was probably like three or four days. And she had to leave early to attend to some things. And she was a little bit in a hurry. And as she was in a hurry, she knocked over a vase. And she said to herself, you klutz. And then right after that, she said, you're a klutz, but I love you. And again, she said, where did that come from? That wouldn't have been my response. So I just say that, that there's a mysterious aspect to all of this. We're inclining and thing, things occur. We're, we're wanting to have that um, intention of goodwill continually. There's a 
beautiful line from a, a text that I love called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life but from the 8th century, Shantideva. The Bodhisattva is a being dedicated to um, help others and also to awaken. And this line says, Whenever catching sight of others, look upon them with an open, loving heart. Simple, that's all. Just very, very direct guidance. And there, there are a few ways that the, that the practice, I think, develops as, as we, we do it more and more. Um, this continual intending to incline towards the open heart helps us more and more to um, kind of meet life, meet our own experience through the heart which for a lot of us was not our conditioning. It was not our, our training. So, so for me, for example, I think I was trained to meet experience and to meet others with good analytical problem-solving capabilities. <laughs> <laughs> and those have their place, certainly. But... Um, and... You know, I've been paid a lot of money for those capabilities, right? They're valued by the world. But I wasn't really trained to uh, know how to, to approach life generally through my heart, even though I knew I had a, a heart that was open. I, you know, I um, remembered uh, at a lot of movies, crying at movies when I was a teenager, which wasn't really the thing that boys were supposed to do, right? But I, I found that happening. I remember, you know, particularly driver ed movies. <laughs> Are they still offering driver ed movies? <laughs> You know these awful films. They're still. They must. They're st- I'm just saying, head shaking. So, so I knew there was an open heart, but it really, um, in practices like metta and other practices, it was a training that let me more be able to be there with others and just in everyday life, and also uh, when there are difficulties. How can I come from that open heart? You know, and I was thinking of. Um, a retreat that I did maybe five or six years ago, which was the longest time I've done metta practice, about five weeks of metta. And probably the most important insight that I had was there was enough, the metta was getting strong enough that I was very observant whenever, when I would see someone else, if I would be judgmental or if I would even, sometimes when I even would notice myself just making comments like that person's, walking slowly, just almost like a neutral observation. And that, uh, of course, the judgments, but also even the neutral observations would feel off coming from that place of metta because there wasn't a kind heart with that. And that was what I learned. You know, of course, in daily life, that doesn't stay so strongly, but it really was, it really stayed with me, the importance of being able to lead from the heart moment by moment, you know, and... You know, and we'll, we'll see how we train in these simple conditions 
and gradually over time we bring out the capability to lead with the heart even when it's difficult. What would that mean? You know, we're having difficulty with a friend or within the family. Can I lead with compassion? That's what Sylvia was talking about last night. And that's what our training is, is to be more likely that we can do that. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean being nice or a pushover. You know? it's, uh, metta's not that. You know? Metta can be very strong and firm. You know, I won't talk so much about it tonight, but maybe we'll get in dialogue. But I've, I've been t- thinking a lot about what I call tough metta. <laughs> kind of the analog of tough love, you know. Um, it's actually quite important. You know, how can we have the spirit of kindness and warmth when we need to be firm or set boundaries or confront uh, or respond to something that's not right? You know, it takes, it's, that's, that's kind of um, advanced practice maybe, but it's important. We also, as we practice metta, as we've mentioned a few times, the mind settles, we deepen in concentration, and we, we develop the, a kind of settledness in which there's just the metta. Uh, and, and it can really be so um, simple and even freeing. There's a beautiful passage that, from uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And something like we can feel that at times, not, of course not all the time, but at times we can feel just this power of saying, I'm only doing one thing. I'm inclining my heart towards warmth and kindness. That's all I'm doing all day long. You know, and of course sometimes that can be hard, but there's a certain beauty to that and to really um, connect. It's like, like in the text it says, you should sustain this recollection. That's concentration. You should sustain it to sustain what's called the sublime abiding. That's developing in concentration. And as we do this practice, I mentioned this in the small groups, and I think we know this, at times there occurs in metta what we call purification, that things come up, you know, that we intend the open heart and sometimes things come up that are not the open heart. You know, maybe what comes up is fear or anxiety. You know, when we do longer retreats, uh, meaning a week or so, maybe this is occurring here also, um, people have pretty intense dreams at times you know, that bring up a lot of stuff. Sometimes people dream that they're murderers and they come in the morning saying, you know, am I opening to my true nature? <laughs> and, and we say uh, that's part of your experience but that's not your true nature but there's some way that as we open more we open to all of ourselves and some of what comes out that hasn't had room to be there some of which is hard you know, in this part of the process so just to know that that there's, there's a lot of that um, uh, there's a line from Picasso where he says, art washes away the dust of our soul. And metta's like that. It washes away, we might say, the dust of our soul. 
maybe just one last thing, and then we'll we'll see where we go, where we go. Um, all of this brings more access to that um, radiant and luminous open heart, which we touch at different times, which we all know, I think, from different moments of experience. And we touch that more, and over time, we're more in touch with it. Not a linear process, but over time, generally, that's there more as we, as we access it. We, that we can touch this, um, you know, what in the text is called um, a boundless heart that's radiating over the whole world. That's, that's beautiful. That's, but I don't think it's just, um, you know, rhetoric that, that actually, I, I know we all know this. We have moments where we know that, that, um, that open heart. Maybe I'll just end with um, one of my favorite quotations, also from Thomas Merton. Um, this was from a time when he had a, a, a deep opening of the heart. I think it was after going to the dentist, actually. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> but, you know, because he, 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 mon- he was in a cloistered monastery in Kentucky. I, I used to live near, not so far from the monastery, and went there a lot. I lived in Kentucky for four years and went there. And he was in Louisville for a dentist appointment. And as he was walking away from the dentist, something just opened up. I don't know whether it was the... He didn't mention anything about the anesthetic. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it was that. But he, he, something opened up, and this is what he said. He just had this sense of the innate beauty of the people around him and how all of them had good hearts, basically, and how he could be in this experience of feeling his own open heart and the open heart of others, no matter what they were presenting. So I'll just end with this. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. If only they could see all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would all fall down and worship each other. Thank you. I remember. I like everything that... Whoops. So I enjoyed everything that you said. You know, I just uh, recently read that uh, that uh, quote from Merton in a book about Merton, and uh, it became known as his Fourth and Walnut experience yeah, yeah. because it happened on the intersection of Fourth and Walnut mm-hmm. in Louisville. And uh, so it's wonderful that it, I, I was reading a book where uh, a variety of Merton commentators were talking about him. And it's uh, very sweet to talk about the fourth and walnut experience, not his non-dual experience or his sublime opening to cosmic truth, but the fourth and walnut. And I think, and I thought about it when I read it, and I've heard it several times because it's beautiful. And I've thought uh, of all the times that we all have been. Uh, my fourth and walnuts happen more than any place, I think, on, uh, in airport boarding lounges or walking along in an airport. 
everybody, because you're walking down towards your gate, and throngs of people sometimes from a plane that just landed are going this way. And you look, and everybody's going somewhere, and everybody's got business somewhere, and everybody's business is important, and everybody's going because they're excited about something, or they're distraught about something, or they're interested in something, and they're all... uh, they're all amazingly doing it. And I have a great feeling of companionability in those moments. That I'm, I'm not alone. If I'm tired, I suddenly get less tired mm-hmm. because I think, oh, look at this. We're all going somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think about it while I'm in a plane, too, and flying at 35,000 feet, some, you know, maybe over an ocean somewhere, in the middle of the night. And I get up to go to the restroom in the back of the plane and uh, I walk along and you see all those people in the plane and it looks a little bit like a disaster area in the middle of the night you know because people are trying so hard to make themselves comfortable they're slumped all, you know, <laughs> all around and they're slumped on each other if they know each other and they're trying not to slump on each other if they don't know each other and they have babies slumped on them everybody looks really like they're doing everything they can to try to make themselves comfortable in what's fundamentally an uncomfortable situation. And I feel so companionable with them, and they make me feel better. Like, I'm not the only person who's tired at 2.30 in the morning and with another four hours to fly or something. And it seems to me so much Merton's experience, the the 35,000-feet experience, those moments in which you realize that we're all on a trip somewhere. We're all in the plane, literally. We're all on a trip. And I, I really wish well to all those people. I want them to finish their trip well because I'm also in that trip and I want to finish it well. But just in general, people are heroic going about their lives, whatever, trying to hold it together. And that really lifts up my heart when I think about it. You know what else you said a few times, which I was very interested in following up on, was the idea of intentionality, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, you could say something else about it. I, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, probably Sokni Rinpoche, who said, everything hangs on the point of intentionality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, and it's, it's, it's so general in our practice that we, there's, the, there's this um, almost like paradoxical combination of strong intention and really bringing a certain kind of integrity of energy to the practice. And we do our best in the moment, and then we just let go. Mm. It's, it's paradoxical. You know, if we think about it too much, we get a headache. Mm. Um, but there, it's, um, yeah, it's, and, and this, um, it's really so much about moment to moment following this, this intention, you know, and and uh, I think so much of practice is like that. And then, then that, that mystery of we, we act, and, and it's kind of a mystery of being human that, you know, in, in everyday life it's, it's, it's clearer. You know, we try to respond to, a, let's say, a difficult situation, and we summon our best intention, and we act, and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And there's a certain, you know, the Dalai Lama once said, uh, he, he also was talking about how strong intention was, and he, he was asked, um, you know, people say a lot of things about you. You know, some people <laughs> call you 
uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, remember? Or, you know, you're criticized by a lot of people. We don't maybe don't think of the Dalai Lama being criticized a lot, but he is sometimes, certainly, um, by the Chinese government uh, criticized, and some of the younger Tibetans think he's going too slow, and he gets criticisms. And he his response was, um, I really tune into my intention. And if my intention is sincere, I basically don't worry. And then later he was asked this, you know, kind of a different question. What do you do about fear? Or what do you do, you know, what do you, do you ever get upset? And his answer also was to go back to intention. If I, when I'm a, when I, you know, because he hears a lot of stories of Tibetan refugees coming, some of which are fearsome. And he says, when I'm a little bit startled or whatever, I try to go back and feel my sincere intention. And if I feel that, there's a certain settling that occurs. So it's, I think it's so general. And I think with the metta practice, it's, it's really clear that we, that we are um, intending um, through our words to come out of kindness or to open the heart. And that, then what happens is what happens. I was particularly interested in, um, the, the, in following up on talking about intention, about how the, that you said a few times, in, twice in, in this circumstance or in that circumstance, you said, I felt off in my response. Yeah. And I, I think that so clearly has to do with when you set an intention, you go about doing it, and you might not know you're doing it, but you know if you're off of doing it. Um, I used to think about, uh, uh, oh, I, I remember ma- uh, making up for uh, a, uh, an imaginary uh, for example. I said, for example, if you wanted to go from San Francisco to Vancouver, you'd look at a map. You'd get an idea of where you were going to go, and you'd start up probably on the interstate or something, going to Vancouver. And then suppose you lost your map, and but you're continuing along. At least you could have reference points. You could notice that the sun is setting in the west and coming up in the east. And if the sun is still coming up on your right hand and setting on your left hand, even if the streets had and the roads had no street signs, you'd know you were going in the right direction. Otherwise, if you suddenly notice that the sun is setting over here, you might start to think, aha, maybe I've taken a wrong turn. Something would feel off. So you need to have a clear sense of where do you want to go. And I read a book this year, which was one of my favorite Dharma books, at least of this year. I really, I laughed a lot. It's called Dharma Road, and it's written by... Wait, 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 I have to think of this person's name. It'll come to me right away. Uh, he's a fairly new Dharma writer, and uh, uh, an unusual one. When he wrote this book, he was driving a taxi in Austin, Texas, and uh, uh, he's clearly a skilled writer, but uh, he was driving a taxi in Austin, Texas, and he'd been studying a lot of Zen. And so he wrote a book, uh, about uh, Zen and clarity of mind and practice, but he wrote it in the idiom of taxi. 
So he says, and the very first chapter begins something like this. He says, when people get into my cab, I say to them, where would you like to go? And he says, that's about the most important question you could ask a person in their life. And I have been asking people that question since then. I mean, people that I work with, meditation students, where would you like to go? And people, oh, okay, but where would you like to go? Because I think to myself, I don't want to get to be a habitual phrase-sayer or even a habitual blesser, if I think what they are. And necessarily in saying bless, saying blessings all day long. It's not a, you know, it's not a, 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 a not good thing to be. But I actually would rather, instead of saying the, the, the exactness of the practice, I'd like to say, I would like to be a person who has a really, who meets every person with an open and warm heart. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that, was that from Shanti Deva? What Shanti Deva say? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot already. What did Shanti Deva say? <laughs> I like that very much. Meet every person Whenever with. Never catching sight of others. Look upon them with an open, loving heart. Open, loving heart. Yeah. I didn't forget. Okay. Open, loving heart. I'd like to think of that, meeting people uh, non-judgmentally, you know. Um, and you alluded to it a little bit, and I think about it. We are so ready to make decisions of people. When we, when we begin to move, you know we're going to move through more categories. We're going to come up, uh, we're going to come next traditionally, to neutral persons. And one of the things I think about uh, is that there are so few neutral people in our lives. You know, I really have been thinking about, as um, you think about neutral, um, as soon as I know somebody, you feel a little bit this way or a little bit that way about it. And it's true, I've been telling people that for my neutral person, I usually pick my dentist or my... Uh, hair cutter, uh, because I don't think about them a lot. I don't have close and intimate, intense relationships with them. But the truth is, they're not neutral. I like them. If I didn't like them, I'd have another dentist and another hair cutter. I mean, a little bit disposed towards liking them. Otherwise, I'd pick another one. And so often, when you meet somebody, you form an instant opinion often on nothing at all, you know, how they look, how they walk. On retreat, it's tremendous. You, make, you may have noticed you make a million, uh, a million, make a lot of views, of, uh, opinions about people from where they stand, how they eat, how much they eat. It's incredible. Just the mind is always evaluated, it's looking and thinking and looking and thinking and commenting. You know, that there's a T called constant comment. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if you, you know, I think if you think about your, your your mind, just in general, it's making comments all the time. And often people discover, especially when they begin to practice, that their mind is making a constant comment. And I, the reason that your story about "I love you" that your mind said is such a good story, or that Sharon said you're a klutz and I love you, is that the mind normally, for most of us untrained doesn't say such nice things. It says you messed up again, you didn't do that as well as you could have, you should have said that, you might have done that. And it says that about other people too. But it, it doesn't, in my experience, unless you really have worked on it a little bit, say such good things about you. 
You know, you do something and it's fine. It doesn't say, "At a girl, you did that great." You know, does it? I think it's waiting to make the corrections. But it's hard to have a. a, a actually, we're not. I'm not even thinking. Shanti Deva isn't thinking about having a neutral. It's about having a warm and a cordial, an expectation. Here comes a person with a life. Yeah, I think. I think what uh, what we can experience here is that uh, this is a training such that kindness is our default position. That's a very nice thing to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that it's um, all things being equal, that's when, when, at moments when it's strong, that's what will be there. Yeah. I thought of one more thing that I wanted to say about what you said. This is parenthetical to everything else because I really want to go in another direction. But... Um, about your saying quite correctly that sometimes people on retreat, and especially on meta retreats, have terrible, terrible dreams. Are the worst nightmare of my whole life. We're and not preparing you for tonight. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't happen a lot, but it's but once we've said it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about the best explanation of that, which I think I don't know if it's true or not. It might have been pulled out of a hat. And anyway, last night we said people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. <laughs> so that you know, so maybe that's not always true, but it's nice to think about. Um, it happened to me that I was in a circumstance. I was actually in India studying with an Advaita teacher, and I was in quite an extraordinarily uh, rapturous mood all the time. It's in a really he was a wonderful teacher. I was there with wonderful friends. I was in India. It was very exciting. I felt marvelous. And an absolutely terrible nightmare. Mm. And I uh, came the next day, as we did every day for Darshan, for the, listening to his teachings. And I raised my hand and I said, you know, how can it be? I feel so good and so really uh, transported and uh, elevated and excited by this whole practice. And, and I had this terrible, terrible dream, which I wouldn't even say. And he said, oh, that's good. He said, that's very good. He said, he said what happens is when the mind is really open and really uh, excited and filled with warm and uh, wonderful feelings, the worst imprints in the dark recesses of mm. the shadow of your heart loosen themselves and they fly out mm. from you and that way they, they come through your mind and then they fly out from you and that means that they won't uh, imprint any further experiences of yours in mm. your life so I don't know if that's true you think that's true? it's very, yeah, yeah it's, it's very, it's, <laughs> why, why not? Well, I was just thinking of an experience I had in that Metta retreat yeah. um, one evening it was like two, in, 2 or 3 in the morning all of a sudden, I just woke up from sleep, sat up straight in bed, and for two hours I reviewed the difficulties of my relationship history. Yeah. For two hours straight, two hours <laughs> over, I went right back to sleep. <laughs> just came and went, had its intensity, and didn't have any residue, and I didn't think about it the next day. It was very interesting. So maybe Punja was right. Yeah, maybe that, it flies I, out. That experience came back right as you were speaking. <laughs> So who knows? I, I, I like mystery, you know. I, uh, 
if this, yeah, there are beings are mysterious. That's, yeah. I think, part of what we cultivate on retreat. You know, I remember, I very, I, I very much remember James Barris, who you were in uh, India with, yeah. who, who, I think for the first time he um, taught me how to just be on retreat and have, cultivate a sense of mystery being close at hand. Yeah. And there's something about that as we sit in silence during the, you know, during several days. It's, we, we can feel closer to that mysterious aspect, which mm-hmm. can be quite uh, beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of mysterious now, I'll tell, the, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a little bit the story of um, the mysterious power of, uh, of loving-kindness as it is, uh, as it's reported in a, in a central story in the Buddhist canon because I'd like to tell that story sometime while we're here, so this seems like a good time. Also makes a wonderful point. Do you know the line in the in the uh, Metta Sutta that we read together last night, where it says, in addition to you know, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams, there's a line further down that says, poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you. You believe that? <laughs> Cal says no. <laughs> I haven't tried it. I wouldn't try it. I think it's a metaphor. I think, but uh, I do. I think it means. I think it means your heart becomes invulnerable, uh, and that uh, your own benevolence will be your support in whatever circumstances, even and up to including your own death. That's what I think that it means, and. Here's a story about the life of the Buddha that is just good to know. And I know that many of you are new to Buddhism and new to retreats. Once upon a time, two and a half millennia ago, uh, 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 a man named Siddhartha Gautama grew up, married, and had a child. And uh, uh, it is said in the legend about his life that he was protected from all awareness of uh, the fragility of life, protected from knowing about uh, what happens to all of us as we live, the troubles and the challenges that we inevitably encounter in the course of a life and the inevitable ends of our life. So I take that to be a metaphor as well, First of all, maybe it happened, but I take it to be a metaphor. And I think for all of us, if we had a lot of time and if we were talking to each other, we could talk about when was the first time that you realized that there's a really a problem about being a person, that, uh, that there's really a problem, and not, so, not only that, but that there's no way back, that having taken birth, that problem is with you. We could call it you know, existential angst or concerns. But. So here's the Buddha, and he left his family, left his wife and child, because in uh, a series of visions, he not only uh, understood the truth that there is old age, sickness, and death, if there is even an old age, but sickness and death, and sometimes old age, sickness, and death. But the fourth of the visions that he saw at that point was the vision of a monastic walking along, a monk walking along in a contemplative, calm of visage, 
state. His face looked calm, his demeanor looked calm. And he, according to the story, felt, I need to do that too. I need to take that life in order to discover for myself the way that you can live in this life, be a human being, and still be calm about it, not be frantic about it, not be uh, distraught about it. So he uh, left his family and he spent some years practicing with first one and then another of uh, the meditation teachers that were reputed to be the most elevated, the most skilled, the most proficient meditation teachers. And in the stories it says that he developed tremendous powers of austerity, that he could sit out in the sun for days, that he could go without eating hardly anything, that he could hold his mind very, very still. But still, he said, you know, I've done all these practices and both of these teachers invited him to stay on and teach along with them because he was so proficient at that training the mind. And he said, no, this isn't the answer that I wanted. I wanted really to know how human beings can live in a world where this is the truth of life that there is old age, sickness, and death, and all the different vicissitudes of challenge, all the different varieties of challenge that happen to us in our life. So in the story, he leaves those teachers and goes off by himself. And um, actually, it's a lovely part of the story is that uh, his people, that he's his closest monk companions that he's been uh, practicing with all say to each other, this is a terrible thing that he's doing. Look at that. He's given up the holy life. And he leaves and uh, comes to Bodh Gaya and sits down under a tree in Bodh Gaya that remains a famous place to go to. And according to the story, he cultivates with great intention uh, a kind of shield of metta around him. He's practiced his concentration so steadfastly that as, a, as the fruit of that concentration, all of the disturbance of his, of his mind are quietened down and a great radiant shield of goodwill is, surrounds him and protects him. And he says in a, all we can see on the tanka in the back, he has one foot, uh, one hand on the ground, and uh, he's ass- he's assailed by the forces of Mara. Mara is a uh, is in the story a personification of all of the most difficult afflictive mind states, all of the things that are scary, all of the things that are um, seductive and catch your mind. In, in, in erotic ways. All of the things that disturb peace of mind, assail his mind, come in actually in the, in the pictures, the drawings that you read, the illustrations, they come in riding in on, on horseback with spears and arrows and erotic visions. And, and here he is with his uh, fingers on the earth and saying presumably, uh, as earth is my witness, I won't be moved. I belong here. And he sits and he spreads out this enormous field of loving kindness and the forces of Mara can't touch him. As a matter of fact, in the story, 
they unleash uh, arrows and spears. And when these arrows and spears touch this field of loving kindness around him, that they turn into flowers and fall on the ground all around him. So I love that image, you know. Legend or no legend, I love that image. If all of the things that assailed my mind could encounter such a shield that would turn them into flowers that fell around me, it would be wonderful. Actually, that's what I'm hoping will happen more and more. I find that a wonderful story. It doesn't matter to me if it's a metaphor or not a metaphor. Because in real life, I am easily assailed, less easily than I used to be. And I think because to some, in some measure, uh, poisons and weapons and fire won't harm me. When I'm in my best mind, they won't. So there's one more thing I want to say about that story. I love that story. By the way, at the end of that, at the, after that battle, and Mara and Mara's forces all leave, at the end of the night, that the Buddha sits the whole night, you know, the Buddha means the awakened one. So he sits the whole night, and he has various levels of understanding. And he sat down saying, I won't be moved until I really understand completely the causes of suffering and the end of suffering. And among the many things that he discovers and declares that he understands the next day when the dawn breaks are the causes and the end of the cause and the end of suffering. And fundamentally later on he encounters the same uh, uh, monks that he had been practicing with before and he preaches his first sermon to them. And the part of that first sermon, which is called Setting into Motion the Turning of the Wheel of Dharma, he tells them the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Noble Truths, which remain for all lineages of Buddhism, their bottom line shared understanding. There are lineages of, the, of Buddhism, you probably know that, from how the teachings of the Buddha spread all over Asia and now all over the West. But what's true amongst all those lineages is everyone really will say the cause of suffering, that life is complicated, that's the first noble truth. Life is challenging for everyone. And that the, the it isn't even, it's often phrased the second noble truth as the cause of suffering is um, craving. I don't think it's the cause of suffering, I think it is suffering. Craving is suffering. The imperative in the mind that things have to be different from the way they are is suffering. The third noble truth, which I love, is that the end of suffering is a possibility. That's so exciting. That's what he discovered, that the end of suffering is a possibility. Not the end of challenge, but the end of suffering. The, that we can really develop the skill to, through wisdom through wisdom grounded in equanimity, come to the end of that uh, imperative in the mind. The Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Noble Truths, are eight ways of practicing. They are all in that sutta that we read uh, last night. The first three ways of practicing are uh, wise... um, 
wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. They're all the beginning of the sutta that we read, the development of ethics, doing not the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. And the middle part of the sutta is what we would wish if our minds were glad and safe. What we would wish, and what we would wish is may all beings be well. All kinds of beings, every being, near and far, seen and not seen, born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. And then the end of the sutta, which is the middle part, really, of the of the Eightfold Path, of uh, wise effort, wise uh, mindfulness, and wise concentration. And the end, wise understanding and wise aspiration, are the end of the sutta as well. This is said to be the sublime abiding, the pure-hearted one. Let me make sure that I read it exactly right. The pure-hearted one, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed, it says, being freed from sense desires. I think it means being freed from the imperative of sense desires, is not born again into suffering, which is how I choose to read the last line. And the wise understanding and the wise aspiration is, I think, the, 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 the multiple ways that we can say that, that understanding, that life is difficult for everyone, that, 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 that uh, imperative is suffering, that the end of suffering is a possibility, that things change all the time, that that's actually an, it's an inherent part, it's an integral part of life is challenging. We can't get it right all the time. We get something all put together and we've got it and then it falls apart. Inside, outside, the stuff we have, our insides, everything. We fall in love and, and the other person falls in love with us and it's good and then after a while, they don't love us, or we don't love them, or something else happens, or something else happens. Life is very complicated. Um, we love something, and something happens to it, and it's a tremendous loss. I think that there's much that there's a way of uh, taking a line from a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, uh, asked me if I'd come and speak at her assisted living place. She was in her 90s at that point, and she had just moved into the assisted living. And she said, I wish you'd come and talk, give a class here for me and some of my friends here. Because we're all having trouble uh, getting used to our new situation. And I thought to myself, accommodating, she said, we're having trouble accommodating to our new situation. I think that the whole of life is accommodating to the new situation. From the beginning, you know, whether going to school or learning algebra or discovering your sexuality or figuring out your life, which is always accommodating. Having a family, not having a family, this, that. Having a partner, not having a partner. Suddenly, by the time you figure that out, then you're old and you, know, uh, you work out in a gym, you get a great body, and then you have arthritis. That you know that it's it's always a new challenge. One of my classmates at school, I I visited with at a reunion. 
And she said, you know, I was really working on swimming, and you know, this is now this our fifty. We've just had a fifty-fifth reunion. She said, I was working on my swimming, and I was really getting. I was competing master swimming. I was really great, and then my shoulder got all wrong, and they couldn't fix it up. So now I'm doing the piano, and I've determined that I'm going to learn all the Beethoven piano. I'm going to really get proficient at the piano, Beethoven piano sonatas. So she's doing that with vigor. And she said, but I was doing that, and then I discovered the arthritis in my fingers wouldn't, wouldn't stand up to it. So, you know, you get used to, and you do something else, and you get used to, and you do something else. So it's not all tragic, and it's not a mistake. It's just the way things are. But to be able to say that's the way things are, everything changes. Everything has a cause. My, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, used to say, it's a lawful cosmos. In the, from the beginning, because he speaks with a, quite a heavy Brooklyn accent, I thought he was saying it's an awful cosmos. And I was in a more melancholy stage of my own life, and that's why I actually thought, well, he's right. <laughs> it is. But it's lawful. Things happen because of reasons. It's a lawful cosmos, and everything has to do with everything else. Everything makes a difference. Everybody here, in their way, as they go around their life, is acted upon by everybody that they know and everything that we do matters to everybody else. So everything, everything becomes totally important. There's no trivial thing. There is no moment to lose. Nothing is trivial because everything matters. Wow. <laughs> you know, I can't stop teaching ever, however old I get, because I fire myself up and I really believe it and it makes me feel good. What were you going to say, dear? <laughs> wow. A few thoughts. Um, one is, uh, you know, I always appreciate the uh, connection of the metta practice with our with our cultivation of wisdom. And but I really wanted to talk about the shield of metta. Okay, go ahead. Um, because that that's uh, definitely cool. <laughs> um, and I had, I had two thoughts on the kind of the metta shield or the way that it. Um, can, the way the way that metta is a protection, really, and um, one of them was I was reflecting on the story of the very origins of metta. Uh, oh, yeah. The story it's kind of a legend, but the story is that uh, metta originated as an antidote to fear. In this way that there were a group of uh, monastics who went into a forest. And at that time, there was a lot of belief in tree spirits. And they related to all sorts of, well, I should say nature spirits of many kinds. And they related particularly, they went to be in a forest and do their practice there. And the local tree spirits said, Um, fine, stay here. And they really liked it, and apparently they stayed long enough so that they overstayed their welcome. And the tree spirit said, well, it was okay for a while, but they're just staying and staying. And so they had the capability as tree spirits to manifest horrific smells and really bad visions, which they did. And uh, the monastics, I guess, monks and nuns, went back to the Buddha, basically, we would say, freaked out. <laughs> and really fearful, and, you know, of all this horrible, these horrible experiences. I think particularly the smells were really, really bad. 
So, so the Buddha says, I have just the practice for you. And he gives the metta. You know, I'm, I'm telling it a little bit humorously, but it's actually, I think, really um, important. And they went back and the same things happened. The difficult experiences happened, but with the metta, they persevered and they had a tool actually to calm themselves and soothe themselves in a way with, some, with difficult experiences. And eventually it's said that the tree spirits grew to really love the metta practitioners and they said, we will protect you in turn. And uh, I was reflecting on that in terms of the way that uh, this practice um, is a very powerful antidote when we have it developed well for all sorts of difficult states. You know, I, I like to think that metta is a general uh, tool that we can use when we get out of balance, when we're self-judgmental or fearful or things are too much. We can do metta, but we have to practice it to develop it. That's what's important. That's why we're here. We want to have this very focused training here and then give really strong encouragement to keep it going, basically, after the retreat. And to, but to really have this experience of total immersion so it's something go, goes deeply in it. And as we get it developed more strongly, we can bring it to difficult experiences. And in a way, though, it's really important that the metta develops by practicing it first in relatively protected simple environments, and then gradually over time we bring it out into more challenging or more complex environments. Really important learning principle. All of us, initially, probably myself included, we learn about metta, and we will want to instantly bring it to the most difficult things in our lives. But it really is important to, to develop it in simple and less challenging ways first. It won't get strong enough. It's true with all disciplines. Like you know, being a musician, you don't start with the concerto. You start with scales, right? And it's kind of it's anything that we do is like that. And so we, we train and we work with, that's like how, why we're going from what we take to be easier ways to develop metta with the self and the benefactor and the friend. And then gradually we go into more challenging uh, ways of doing metta. So I think that um, that building of the shield is something that, that we can do by uh, really keeping on developing it, but really having that sense that we develop it, keep on developing it in relatively protected environments till it gets stronger. And then it really can be of use when we're knocked around or off balance or challenged or in a difficult moment in a relationship or whatever. So what are we going to do? It's 8.30. I'm thinking about... Are you tired? (laughs) (laughs) That was was quick. That was a pretty unanimous tired. Um, Do you have a closing story, maybe? Or thought? Sweetheart, I always have a closing story. (laughs) (laughs) I can't... A concise closing story. I have no. I, 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 no. I'm trying to think about. I'm, I'm trying to think of the many things I thought about saying, but I think I'll say them tomorrow. Actually, because everybody's tired. Because I, I do want to make a point about um, 
what you just said about the meta shield that uh, that <clears throat> what we're doing here is really a, a, think about it as goodwill practice but also as concentration practice and sometime in the morning when we talk again I'm going to tell you about uh, what uh, what uh, in the psychology of mind states what we understand to be the components of a concentrated mind and why in fact they are the antidotes to all of the afflictive mind states it's late in the evening and we're all tired um, I was thinking about how many people truth to tell were thinking of going to sleep right now <laughs> uh, how many people, uh, if we had a five minute just stand up and stretch and use the restrooms break, would come back and sit until nine? How many people will come back and sit at a different, is that a different community? I can't tell. No, no, I was, I was trying to encourage the people who are very, very tired to sit for another 20 minutes till nine. That's only 20 more minutes till 9. Normally we sit from, 20, from 9 until 9.30, but I had a feeling that people were tired. Is that true? Yes. Would you rather sit from 5 minutes from now till 9? Yes. That's a lot of yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think, um, and the others who didn't say yes, they can sit till 9.30. They can. <laughs> I personally would like to sit from five minutes from now until nine. So if you want to, then join me. Stand up, do whatever you want to do, and come back in five minutes. Can I, can I just say one thing to, to, to yes. finish? I, I just uh, I imagine I speak for you, but I just want to really thank you for the dedication uh, today to this practice. We, we know it's not, especially for those for whom it's the first retreat, it's it's hard, you know, and it's hard, and people have really uh, stayed with this. I just want to appreciate that very much. Thanks. I'll ring the bell in five minutes, and then I'll ring the bell 20 minutes after that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.